This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That to be joined on Football CFB today by Marvin Bartley, player who is currently at Livingston, was part of the Scottish Cup winning team at Hibs, played at Bournemouth, Burnley, Leighton Orient, among many others as well. First of all, Marvin, thanks for joining me. No, no problem at all. It's a pleasure. Um, honestly, obviously, when you got in contact to do it, you know, um, it, it was absolute pleasure. So, no, no problem. The first thing I want to talk to you about is what you're up to at the moment. You've been doing quite a lot of Instagram lives with famous faces across the world of football. How did that idea come to you and just how good has that been? Because as the viewer, I've absolutely loved watching them. <laughs> no, um, so it, it came about really, um, I was being messaged by people, obviously, you know, in, in these difficult times and a lot, a lot of people were missing football. And I thought to myself, you know, how can, you know, how can I put something out there that, that people can watch that, you know, hasn't been overdone kind of thing? And I thought, you know, why not get players on, on Instagram Live where, you know, they'll speak openly about their careers because obviously I'm a current player, you know, there's no hidden agenda behind it. Um, you know, and, and in doing that, you know, the fans probably see a different side to them. You know, these players are probably used to seeing on a Saturday or a Sunday. Um, you know, they don't really know a lot about them as an actual person. So, you know, that was kind of the thinking behind it. And, I, you know, I think it, it went relatively well because, as I said, you know, uh, supporters began to see a different side to players. You mentioned the fact that as fans, we get to see a different side to players. You're obviously involved in football firsthand, which as a fan, we can only dream of. I know you've been playing for many years, Marvin. You're 33 at the moment. I know you've been thinking about coaching. Have you been reading up on coaching and studying different philosophies and, 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 and techniques during this uh, lockdown period? Yeah, um, the, the simple answer to that, really. Um, you know, I've been, I've been doing an awful lot of reading. Um, you know, it, it's kind of strange because I'm looking back, like you say, I'm 33 now. And I look back at when I was at school and, and, and reading books, it was something that didn't really excite me. It wasn't something that I would have, you know, perhaps uh, done in my spare time. Where, where now, um, you know, when I'm looking to go into the, probably the next chapter in my career, um, you know, the reading of books and, and, and kind of learning that I need to be doing this lockdown has allowed me to do that and probably speeded up the rate that I can learn. Um, you know, I've ordered some wonderful books off Amazon um, and there's one coaching for performance, which I'm actually reading at the moment, the fifth edition. And it's not, it's not specifically, you know, football related. It, it's, it's an organization, you know, know that that's, that's kind of what it's related to. So, um, but there's, there's things in there that you could, you know, adapt and, and take into the football world and, you know, I think it's important as, you know, I want to be a future coach, future manager. Like, I don't just read football-related stuff. Um, you know, I think if you want to make a difference, you probably have to start thinking outside of, of, of the box. And that's what I'm trying to do at the moment. You mentioned the fact you're thinking outside the box. I've got to ask you the obvious question in the sense that you're working under Gary Holt at Livingston. You're part of a team that's very successful, a team that, in the eyes of fans of other clubs, maybe provides shocks in terms of shock results but 
if you've been watching Livingston consistently, you'll know it's no shock because the work ethic of your team is, is second to none. Yeah, um, definitely. You know, the work ethic that we have is absolutely huge. Um, you know, again, I think we're a team that are not built on spe special individuals and that's no disrespect to any player. Um, you know, but we have a team ethos that we, that we all follow. Um, and that, that's, that's, you know, provide us with some good results and some great results even. Um, but, you know, as, as, a, as a football team and as players and as individuals, we know we're only as strong as our weakest link. And that's kind of the motto that, you know, that the, the management team have, have put down to us as players. And we understand that. And nobody wants to be the weakest link. So when you've got 11 players out on the pitch and, you know, if boys are coming off the bench, nobody wants to be the weakest link. And it, it means we're performing to a, a much higher level. You know, we're, we're performing to... 100% of our capabilities, you know, we won't always have good games as individuals, but we'll always give 100%. And, you know, that will help us collectively as a team get, get more good results than bad. I'm interested to ask, Marvin, how did the move to Livingston come about? Because obviously you were at Hibs for a, few, a fair few years, successful time, but in terms of getting regular game time, probably the time to move on. And, and in Livingston, you've joined a club that, as we speak at the moment, um, we don't know if the, if the football's going to return or not. You're ahead of your former club, sitting in fifth in the table, which is absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. Um, f firstly, the, the move kind of came about, and as you said, it was about regular first-team football. You know, we touched on earlier, I'm, I'm 33 now, and, you know, I would love to play on until I was 50, but it's not going to happen, let's be honest. You know, as a player, when you get to probably the twilight of, of your playing days, you, you want to play football, you want to play football regularly. Um, and it was a huge decision having to leave Hibs. And, you know, but I thought, you know, when that was going to happen, where did I want to go? Um, you know, I wanted to stay in Scotland because I signed up for a, a football management course at, at Napier University. Um, so, so that was, you know, one of the important factors. I wanted to be in and around the Edinburgh area. Um, and Livingston was a, was, a, was a perfect fit for me because you know, not only would it allow me to you know, as long as I was informed, play more games, which, which I touched on there, which was important. Also, the coaching element, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm coaching the reserve team. Um, so for my development as a coach, that was massive also. So it kind of ticked all the right boxes uh, for me personally. And, you know, some people will say, luckily, uh, I've come into a club that, you know, is fantastic for me. And at this point in my career, I, I couldn't have chosen a better club. Fantastic people in and around the place. We've got boys who want to learn and I can, you know, use my experience to help them improve as players. Um, and also I'm playing regularly, which is the most important thing at this point. You mentioned the fact that regular first team football, especially as you get into your 30s, is very important. I want to ask you about a player in particular before we talk about the season as a whole. Effie Ambrose, I'm assuming <laughs> there was a wee bit of Agent Bartley getting Effie to live. <laughs> yeah, you know... Um, me and Effie have stayed in contact, um, you know, ever since I met Effie, we, we, we became friends and, you know, obviously he, he ended up leaving Hibs and going down to Derby, but we always stayed in contact, you know, um, and he's a fantastic player, a fantastic player. And it just shows in football, um, you can fall out of the game ever so quickly. You know, if you'd have looked at it 18 months ago and somebody would have been saying to Effie, you know, after being at Derby, you're probably going to miss six months of football, you know, he'd have been like, no chance. You know, that's, that's never going to happen. Um, but as I said, you know, it, it did happen. And being at the age I am now and probably having the role I do have at Livingston, I'm always constantly looking to help the club evolve, you know, trying to bring in better players. How can we improve ourselves on and off the pitch? And, and Effie Ambrose was, was part of that, you know. 
He's a fantastic player, played at the highest level, you know, won Athlon Cup of Nations, you know, played in the Champions League, obviously in a Celtic team that beat Barcelona. So he's really been there and done it. And, you know, I, I spoke to the management team at the club and said, you know, I think this opportunity uh, for us is one we shouldn't miss. Um, I then started speaking to Effie and he was interested in doing it. Again, that hunger to play football. You know, he's not getting any younger. You know, he's 31 now. He wants to be playing football. You know, missing that six months has really hit him hard. Um, and we managed to make it work. And as you said, from the outside, it, it looks like a, a huge signing, which it actually is. But, you know, Effie, it's not just about what he does as a player. It's about an infectious change room that we're trying to create. And when you come into the change room, you, you see someone who's playing in Champions League and, and played in international tournaments that Effie has for the younger boys. You know, that, that really inspires them to try and take their game onto the next level. And that works perfectly for us as a team, as a collective. You know, it then makes us step up again. So, yeah, there was a bit of Agent Bartley in it, but there was also a lot of thinking behind the move as well. <laughs> well, you, that's the thing. And, and you, you mentioned the young players there and the benefits of having players like Effie. And I want to put that spotlight on yourself because you've been doing a lot of punditry work this year. And I'm not just saying this because you're on. I'm not trying to just shower you with compliments because you've came on. But you're someone, in my opinion, who talks very well. You're a good communicator. I enjoy listening to you in sports scene or on BT when you've been on. And how much are you thriving being one of the senior players in the dressing room? Because obviously when you started playing football in the non-league system in England, which we will come to, you're a young player, you're making your way in the game and you look up to the senior players. So now that you're in that position, how much pride do you take in that role? I take great pride in it, you know, and it's now not just about Marvin Bartley, the player, it's about what I can do for other players, you know, it's almost being a mentor at time, it's being a leader, um, and, and as I touched on there about having an infectious change room, I need to be uh, a shining example to these boys, you know, what you need to do to, to try and go beyond what I've achieved in football. Um, so I, I'm really, really enjoying it. It's a, it's a massive massive thing when the manager comes to you and says I want you to be a leader you know I want you to lead this dressing room and don't get me wrong my personality has probably always been that way anyway um definitely in probably the last like five or six years I've always tried to you know take things up a step I've always tried to help whatever club I'm at evolve um but when the manager puts that responsibility upon you you know I think it does make you probably stand a little bit taller you know and think you know what the manager can can uh, see what I want to do he believes in what I want to do and he thinks I'm good for the dressing room so it's absolutely massive um you know when he does put that confidence in you in regards to doing the punditry work the sports scene the BT sport um I just kind of say it how I see it and it's, it's funny I spoke to somebody yesterday about this and they said well you know have you sort of like thought about your style how you're going to be and I said I'm just going to be honest in terms of you know the football I see and I think that's the best way. You know, I don't want to be someone who's going on there and, and having a go at players for the sake of doing that. Um, and also don't want to be someone who goes on there and be player friendly. As I said, I, as I've touched on a couple of times, it's just saying what you see. And it's, it's hard for me because I'm currently playing, obviously. So if I do go on there and start hammering players for not doing things and then they come and watch me a week later and I can't make a five-yard pass, it's probably not going to go down too well. So... There's an element of, of, of trying to be careful in that sense. But as I said, if a striker runs through one-on-one, -on -one, for example, and, and he misses it, and I know the player has a quality to put that away, um, I, I'll say that, you know, knowing that I'll probably run through one-on-one -on -one ten times and only score once. But I'm not just going to defend them because I can't do it. It's what they can do as players. And I think, you know, 
the feedback I've got from from players that I've played against since doing that and referees and and and, and the like it's, it's been really really positive um and as I said you know I'm a representative for, for Livingston Football Club when I go on and do these things so it's important that I I carry myself well and you know I, I I'm just fair with what I uh what I put across you mentioned the fact that you're still playing when you're on BT especially do you get stick from the likes of Chris Sutton who try and wind you up because you're still playing off camera <laughs> yeah, I think Chris Sutton winds everybody up. But no, you, you know what? It was it was strange because obviously going on to BT for the first time and you, you're there with some huge names and obviously you just touched on Chris Sutton there and you think to yourself, wow, like, you know, I used to watch this man playing and now I'm doing punditry work with him. But what a fantastic, fantastic man he, he truly is. And I'm not just saying that again because, because we're on here. Um, absolutely brilliant. You know, in terms of the punditry stuff, he was ever so helpful uh, for me. Um, you know, gave me some 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 good uh, points to take away, um, and I think that's massive. You know, and we've talked about me in the football changing room and that environment and trying to be infectious and you know try and help in the younger players and almost be a mentor. He had met me, and on the first day, he's trying to do that for me, and it just you know shows the ilk of the man. You know, when he's willing to do that, to go out of his way and maybe spend ten or ten or fifteen minutes rather with me, and you know to speak me through for, uh, certain things. So. No, he, he does wind you up, but he's, uh, he's very, very helpful and, and a lovely man, as I've just said. In terms of the punditry, I'm sure that's something we'll see more of in the future. But in terms of coaching, um, is, is coaching in Scotland, if, if there was a managerial opportunity in, say, three or four or five years' time, however long, obviously you've still got a good playing career there, so I'm not trying to detract away from that in any way, shape or form, but... Would you consider managing in Scotland or are you looking long-term to get back to England? Um, it's where the opportunity arises, really. Um, you know, I've, I've enjoyed my time thoroughly and I'm still enjoying my time in Scotland. Um, it's been absolutely brilliant for me from a playing point of view and now going into kind of the coaching role. Um, as you said, I've, I've got two years left on, on my playing contract, but if an opportunity was to arise and, and it was something that, you know, I thought that was something that interested me and, and it was an ambitious club and, you know, we kind of had the same philosophy in terms of going forward, then, you know, I would, I would think about it, um, whether it was in Scotland, it was in England or, you know, it was kind of abroad. Um, you know, I've had the opportunity and people have spoken to me, well, two separate clubs about, you know, going into like kind of a player manager role. Um, but these opportunities haven't been right for me and that's, that's the most important thing. It, it has to be the right opportunity at the right time. Um, and, you know, as I said, I'm, I'm open to listen to anybody. But at this moment in time, I'm thoroughly enjoying my, my time at Livingston Football Club from a playing and coaching point of view. But, you know, if something was to change and, and there was an opportunity that came up, then obviously it's something that I would consider. Absolutely. And, and who knows what the future holds. And in terms of the coaching, as I say, I wish you all the best with that. But I want to rewind back to the very start. You were born in Reading. You came through at Reading as a youngster, but you were released as well. I mean, how tough is that to take as a teenager? Because a lot you know, it's like yourself. You, you'll have spoken to people, you'll have known people in football that when they're released at that age, it's a case of sink or swim. And you've definitely been, been one who's went on to swim. Yeah, but the, the, the whole story behind me being released is, is kind of a funny one. Um, you know, and if we go back to me starting playing football at the age of nine or ten, um, I, I was late in coming into the game, especially when you look now and you've got, you know, four or five-year-olds playing for, like, pre-academies and all this sort of thing. But I, I stepped into football, as I said, nine or ten, and it was local Sunday league. It was then my school team. Um, 
You know, I was then selected for Reading Schoolboys um, at a young age, maybe 10 or 11. Um, I was then in Reading Academy 18 months after, you know, starting playing football for a six-week trial. Um, I was then offered a contract after a week of that trial. So it was all kind of like a whirlwind for me at such an early stage. And, you know, I'd gone from a boy who just wanted to enjoy my football and was really just beginning to grasp the concept of, of playing football with your friends and being in the team environment to being at Reading Academy. And in the first year, I was still allowed to play my Sunday league football, so it was slightly easier for me. But in my second year there, you know, that was taken away. And it was now, you, you know, you're a Reading player and the, the whole focus was on, you know, structured training sessions, you know, getting better, drumming it into you. You want to be a footballer, you want to be this. And, and the enjoyment factor went away from me. You know, the, the enjoyment that had brought me to football had then been taken away in such a short space of time. And, you know, I found that really, really uh, hard to deal with. Um, so much so that I think under 13s, I, I wasn't enjoying being at Reading. You know, I remember I'd go into my end of season meeting and, and thinking to myself, I wanted to be released. I, I wanted to be released from my contract. I wanted to be told, you know, that you're not getting another one. Um, and I remember having this conversation, you know, with my mum and, and she was like, well, you know, we'll just see how it goes. And, and if you do want to come out, even if you are offered another contract, then, you know, maybe we'll pull you out. There was no pressure on me. You have to play football that, you know, that a lot of the other young boys at this point had. Um, so when my contract was extended for another year, it was a, probably a huge disappointment. And I don't mean to say this sounding you know, disrespectful, um, because I know a lot of people would have given their right arm to be in that position or for their kids to be in that position. But for me personally, that the enjoyment factor, as I said, had gone. So when I went from under 30s to 14s, and then I was released at the end of that under 14 season, it was a huge relief for me. Because, you know, now I could go back to playing Sunday League with my friends and and so much so, it was, I got released, you know, I was ecstatic, you know, to, to be released. And I'm in the car on the way home, I called my old Sunday league manager and said, I've been released, I'm, I'm coming back to, you know, Caversham boys who were my local team. And I think that for, for my development was absolutely huge. You know, um, if I had maybe been kept in that kind of environment, so I was under 16s, under 17s, who knows, I maybe would have fallen out of love with football because... A lot of those players, where their pressure was put on them at that age in my team, you know, by the time we got to 21, these boys had fallen away from football. Now, I don't just mean that in a sense of, you know, they weren't playing professionally. They weren't playing football at any level, even Sunday league, because they'd been playing since they were, you know, five or six. They had had their parents drum it into them. You want to be a footballer, you want to be a footballer. And, you know, by the time they got to under 17s, got their scholarships, under 18s, then released, their love for football had gone. And, you know, at this stage, they'd been there... You know, if you're 19, 20 years of age, they've been playing football for 15 years already. Where for me, that 15-year mark only came when I was 25 and in a professional game. You know, now I'm 33 and still in love with football, you know, more than ever. But these boys have got to 21, they just, they just weren't interested in playing. And, you know, I think my career path, if it's one that you can almost guarantee yourself at the end, you're going to be a professional footballer, it's the best way to go. It's almost like getting promoted out of the championship. The best way to do it is through the players if you know you're going to get up. And in terms of my career, you know, and from a young age, I think it was the best thing that happened to me, getting released at 14, going back to the nitty-gritty of playing Sunday League and, and enjoying it again with my friends and, and staying in the Sunday League kind of... Um, uh, staying in the Sunday League, sorry, from, from kids to adults. And, you know, I was playing Sunday League two months before signing my professional contract. You know, that's how much it, it's played in developing me as a player. In terms of making it in the game one of the things that I'm interested to talk to you about is how big an impact the Hayes football education development opportunity or FEDO 
as it's been called, played in you because it not only helped you develop, but when you look through some of the players that have come through there in the past, I mean, there's been there's been a fair few. I mean, Lloyd Awusu comes to mind, who had obviously spells with Sheffield Wednesday, Reading, Brentford, and, and several other clubs. Just what was that experience like to, to help you make your way in the game? It's funny you should mention that because only the other day, um, you know, something that we're going to put out, I did a, a Zoom call with, you know, four other students from that course, you know, um, and there's two of us that made it pro, uh, me and Liam Feeney. Um, there's two other guys who have now gone into, well, one's a teacher, so he's kind of the head of like a Fido kind of course. Um, the other one owns his own business in, in sports and education. And Nicole, who was a girl uh, on there with us, is a physio, but now she's kind of teaching at a college also. So it's funny you should mention that that, that Fido course had a, had a massive impact on my career. You know, I met a coach called Simon East, um, you know, who, who played a lot in my in my development at that age, um, you know, put me forward for England colleges, which I got into and got to experience that. And really, I think for the, for the first time since getting released from Reading, I had that kind of structure around me again, but this time I thrived in it. Whereas before at Reading at a young age, I really struggled in it and I definitely failed within it. This, this time I thrived in it. And that Fido course was absolutely massive in terms of my development as a football player and as a, as a man. Um, so, you know, I can't, talk about those courses highly enough and it's not just about going there and and trying to become a footballer all of us want to become footballers but kind of the recording I've, I've done with with a few of my classmates shows that you know to be a success you don't have to just make it as a footballer and there's other ways to be successful in life and and that's the most important thing about these college courses don't go there with the the pressures thinking I need to be a footballer go there and think to yourself listen I just need to grow as a person yes I'm going to play football but if there's other routes that I can probably go down also from, from doing those courses and definitely look into it. One of the things that interests me about you is you, you start at Burnham and you play alongside your two brothers, Mark and Michael. I mean, what's it like playing with your siblings? Because I imagine it can get very competitive on the training field. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was, it was really strange. And, you know, at that point you had uh, my brother Mark, the oldest one at right back, then you had me in centre midfield and then you had my brother Michael up front. So although we were in the same team, we were in probably like different units of kind of the pitch, you know, different thirds of the pitch. But it, it was fantastic. Um, you know, it's, it's something that I, I wouldn't have dreamt of uh, at a younger age. It's something, that, to be honest, I probably wouldn't even have thought of. Um, but no, it was absolutely brilliant. Um, you know, we did it there at Burnham. We did it at, at Hayes also. But it was absolutely fantastic and it's actually funny, I remember Burnham, well, I'll say it's funny now, me and my brother Mark were released from that club on the same day um, after the same game. Uh, so yeah, it was brilliant to play with both my brothers, but obviously I ended up being released at 18 and, and kind of looking around and thinking, where do I go from here? You mentioned that aspect of where do you go from here and from Burnham onto Hayes, playing alongside your brother again, Didcot Town, Hampton and Richmond Borough. Just what was non-league football like for you and how important was it in your development? Because you see a lot of players in the Premier League in England and the, the Football League who, whether it's the clubs, whether it's themselves, because they're on a decent wage, maybe are reluctant to go out to the non-league on loan. Whereas you were permanently in the non-league at that time, you weren't attached to a bigger club, but your development was, was, was certainly very useful in that league because from playing in the non-league you get your move to Bournemouth so just how important was the non-league to you? 
I think it's extremely important, and you touched on it there about you know younger players not wanting to go out to non-league or lower league uh, teams. I think playing first-team football um, is the most important thing in terms of your development. Um, you can play as many under-23 games as you want to play. You can do as many training sessions as you want to do. That pressure of playing on a Saturday and it meaning something, there's three points on the line and somebody's uh, job on the line, you know, let's be honest, you know, managers that don't do well are fired. Um, having that, that, that kind of tension going into games, I think you need to develop that at a young age and non-league football allowed me to do that. Because as you said, I, I was a permanent fixture in, in non-league. So, you know, playing those games and, and developing my game and having good games, having bad games, dealing with fans, dealing with, you know, getting booked early on, like learning these things that I needed to learn that now I look back on have been so massive for me in terms of my development. It, it, it's huge. And I, it, I, I say to the young players now at Livingston, go out on loan, you know, learn your trade. Don't just sit here and be happy to be a professional footballer. You know, go out there and, and do something and, and it improves you as a player. I think now a lot of players are probably afraid of doing it because they think if I don't go down to that level and shine, maybe my parent club will look at, on me and say, well, he's not good enough for them. He's not going to be good enough for us. And that's not always the case. You know, we sp spoke about the Instagram lives earlier. Adam Bogdan went to crew uh, on loan from Bolton, you know, and he played one game, had a bad game, and then he was on the bench, and then he ended up going back to Bolton. But he went on to have a very successful career, and he's still having one now. You know, the man played in the Premier League. Um, so it's, it's important, definitely important, you know, to go out and do it. And, and for me, it played a, a massive part in, again, developing me not only as a player, but, you know, I had to stand up and be a man as well. And obviously getting released from Burnham at 18 was, was very, very difficult. Um, but, you know, you spoke earlier about the sink or swim kind of thing. And, and I had to swim, you know. It had been easy probably for me to sink and, and think, right, I'll, I'll go to the league below Burnham and, and just sit around there. But I said, no, this is one man's opinion. You know, you have to kick on from here and, and prove him wrong. And, you know, I'd like to think that he would look back now on my career and, and say, yeah, Marvin Bartley proved me wrong. Absolutely. And your CV would certainly say that when you when you when we look at it as we're going to do as we get through this. But you, you also won a promotion when your time in the non-league. Um, I mean, just, just what's it like winning a promotion at any level? Because I always think to myself, as a fan, I never played the game even at amateur level. So I look at guys in the non-league that have won a league title and all, and I think, wow, what an achievement. Because for me, winning a title or winning a promotion at any level of the game is something to be lauded. Yeah, it was it was a fantastic season. You know, that, that was my last season in non-league um, at Hampton and Richmond when we got promoted. And as you said, you know, I've been promoted in non-league and, and the football league, and they both be, mean equally as much to me. Um, absolutely fabulous to... to, to, to Achieved that of Hampton. We weren't expected to go up, which probably made it even sweeter. Um, we had a, a really good manager in Alan Devonshire, who played for West Ham in England. He's obviously now the Maidenhead United manager. And we had a real good core of players, you know. We, we had a couple of special individuals. Um, but again, it's maybe kind of similar to Livingston. We, we just worked harder than every other team, you know. We just believed in ourselves. And, you know, you get one win and then you get two wins. And then think to yourself, you know what, we're actually a decent team as long as we're on our game. And that was the most important thing for us there. You know, we had to be on our game. We all knew our roles. We had to, you know, execute everything perfectly for us to win. And we just managed to do that over the course of the season. And then obviously at the end to, to get promoted and have, have the fans and stuff there. And you know, you know what non-league football's like? All clubs are really, you know, family orientated. And it was fantastic to see, you know, them delighted. They'd supported us 
wherever we'd gone and, and to get promoted and, and to take them up a level was, was for me, a, a brilliant, brilliant thing to do. And at the end of that season, obviously, I ended up leaving. But, you know, I, I look back on my Hampton and Richmond season and say, you know what, I achieved what I wanted to achieve there, you know, and, and that was promotion and, and that was me stepping on. Um, because it wasn't an easy move to make there. It really wasn't. But I, I did it. It worked well for me. Um, you know, and as I say, the rest is kind of history. Am I right in saying when you were in non-league, you are obviously it's a semi-professional level that you doubled up playing with installing double glazing as well? Yeah, that's correct. Um, and, you know, when we've spoken about, you know, my non-league journey and I'm saying how important it is and the route of coming to professional football, it wasn't just the football of playing in non-league, it was working alongside it. You know, I also worked at, at Sports World before that, um, before going into the double glazing business. And that, that now looking back, it makes me um, so grateful for what I have now. You know, not, not just, you know, financially, because, you know, you get paid reasonably well as a footballer, but just, you know, getting up at six o'clock in the morning back then, you know, working till four or five, then having something quickly to eat in your car, then driving up to London to, to go and play. You know, that's why now when I, when I hear young players saying, oh, we've got a double today, it's going to be a long day. I, I think, you know, you don't know what a long day is, you know, and you'll never hear me complain about, um, about training or anything like that. So I'm now doing something I love, you know, before this and, and coming up and through the non-league, I, I was working and then going to play football. That showed my dedication to the game. So now I'll never, ever complain about training sessions or doing double sessions or, or whatever else. Because I know things can be a lot, lot harder and it is for, you know, a high percentage of, of, of the population. When you were moving on from Hampton, you were very close to, to joining MK Dons under Martin Allen. Did you ever have any conversations with him? Yeah. Um, you know, that, that move fell apart due to, due to an agent. Um, you know... I went down to MK Dons, you know, I obviously did really well because they wanted to sign me. Um, the date was, and that one not announced, but I was told what date to go back to, to sign the contract. Um, and Martin Allen ended up going to Leicester the day before I was due to sign the contract. Um, so for me at that point, being a young boy coming from non-league, as a lot of these boys probably have now, you know, there's a few cowboy agents about and this agent got in contact with me and said, oh, you know, I'll sort out the, the finance side to this. And, for me, a young boy didn't know any better. Okay, brilliant. That's fantastic. Um, the agent got involved. Martin Allen left, went to Leicester. I went on my summer holidays. You know, I was out on holiday seeing, you know, I think Johnny Hayes was the one that was announced. And I was thinking to myself, okay, like, he's now starting to sign players. So, um, you know, let's see what happens. Because the agent was saying to me, I oh, know Martin's still interested. He's still interested. Um, but to cut a long story short, basically, the agent did me over, you know, when I was going to MK Dons and he was negotiating my contract, as he said he was going to do for free because I wasn't signed for him and he didn't make this opportunity for me, he was actually charging them and they were willing to pay it. You know, it was a small fee. I think it was like £5,000 or £7,500. You know, when Martin Allen went to Leicester, you know, Martin Allen wanted to sign me, was still speaking to the agent. Martin Allen didn't know I wasn't signed to the agent, so he was obviously doing everything right through him. The agent was trying to get a ridiculous fee from him and Martin Allen refused to do it because he said, you know, it's the same player I was going to sign at MK Dons and give you £7,500 for. Bearing in mind I was on a free transfer here, so it was the agent that was getting that money. Um, why am I going to now pay, you know, through the nose for him just because I've changed club? I don't agree with it. Um, and, you know, that was not made aware to me until I remember I signed for Bournemouth. Um, and then I got a call from Alan Devonshire who played with Martin at West Ham and said, wow, Martin's been trying to get hold of you all this time. 
Um, he didn't know that you paid underneath me until he got his assistant at the time. I can't remember what the guy's name was to do some research on you. Um, so Martin's called me straight away. Um, the agent's name was Mark. And he said, you know, Mark's been doing all this sort of thing. Martin wants to go to Leicester now and sign. And I said, well, I've just signed for Bournemouth. Like literally it was half an hour, 45 minutes after signing for Bournemouth that, you know, this all came to light kind of thing. So yeah, in terms of answering your question, I was extremely close to signing for MK Dons um, and then, then obviously also Leicester, but you know, I went to Bournemouth instead and, and it was brilliant. The Bournemouth you join is obviously different to the Bournemouth that everyone's aware of now. When you go into Bournemouth at that time, what was the club like? I mean, Kevin Bond, the manager, what was it like settling into to life in the Football League? Um, it was very difficult. You know, Bournemouth had, um, I think, maybe four players four contracted players from the season before, maybe five. They had a lot of trialists down there when I first went down there for the first week. Um, so it was a very, very new squad. Um, you know, we had Darren Anderson there, who was absolutely fantastic as, as, as a player and, and as a man. Um, he demanded high standards, which was funny because, you know, I was speaking to Jason Pierce the other day on Instagram Live, who I played with uh, at Bournemouth. You know, he's now obviously at, at Charlton, but... You know, we spoke about that as an, it was, it was strange for us because we were young boys coming into, as you said, a, a first team environment. And we were like, I don't think Daz likes us. And it wasn't anything that he said to us personally, but it was just the demands he's putting us in, on us in training. And we weren't used to this, you know, and it's only when you get older and, you know, as, as time went on there, we realised it's not that he doesn't like us. He wants the best for Marvin Bartley. He wants the best for Jason Pierce. So he's been demanding of us you know, in the nicest possible way. And we're taking it to heart. You know, I think in modern day society, we'll be probably called snowflakes. Um, you know, and as I said, it's only as, as time went on, we realised, no, he just wants the best for us. And, and that's all he was trying to, trying to get. And he was being the model professional that, you know, I now try and be. Um, so probably boys go home now and think, oh, Mark doesn't like me, or he doesn't like you or whatever. But, you know, over the months, hopefully they, they, they begin to learn that it's not that, I just want the best for them. Um, so yeah, it was it was hard in, in that sense at first, but listen, it was a fantastic group of players, and obviously we we had our our troubles as a football club, you know, getting relegated um, was it was it was extremely hard in that first season. But in terms of settling in, you know, going out there and playing football is what I love to do, and when I got my opportunity to do that, I, I really enjoyed it. You know, I was like a, a kid in, in a sweet shop, so to speak. So it was a fantastic fantastic time for me. Um, and a proud time, you know, seeing Bartley on the back of my shirt for the first time was, was, a, was a great, great moment. A great moment playing the Football League. You mentioned the, the, the tough relegation, but during your time there, you win a promotion. And I've got to obviously ask you about Eddie Howe, because a manager who is so highly regarded in football, what was he like at that stage initially at Bournemouth um, in his first spell? Because he was very young at the time. Yeah, he was very young, but he made, he was there under Kevin Bond as coach. So, you know, I was, I was used to Eddie in a coaching capacity. You know, he used to take us younger boys for afternoon sessions, where you probably see now football clubs, you know, the under-23s are doing a lot of gym sessions. We would do, you know, two or three extra afternoons out on position-specific stuff. Um, so I was used to Eddie from that. But then, then he came in after Jimmy Quinn and, and made a huge impact straight away because he took the professionalism up, you know, a hundred times what it was under Jimmy. Um, so, you know, Eddie made, made, made a huge impact. And although I think if you look at our first maybe three or four games under him, I think we maybe lost two or three. Um, but there wasn't a panic from us as players because we could see the changes that were being made in training. We could see the improvements that we were making in such a short space of time on the training pitch. 
And it was only a matter of time before that reflected on our game day, you know, performances. So there, there wasn't any panic from us. Um, but Eddie, Eddie was, was brilliant. You know, he, he was, before his time, he was hard working. You know, he was a, the first manager that I had where I thought, wow, this isn't just a job for him. It's a lifestyle. Um, you know, he puts absolutely everything into what he's doing. He was first in, last out. Um, you know, he really looked in depth into other teams and, and how we were going to beat them and their weaknesses and how we were going to pe penetrate those weaknesses. Um, so for me, you know, he, he was, was fantastic. And I think you know, any player that played under him at, at that point would say the same thing. Um, for us as players and us as a group and the culture he created, um, you know, was absolutely magical. You mentioned the fact that, that he created a really good culture. When he goes to Burnley and he's interested in you, was that a no-brainer to go there as well? Yeah, you know, um, definitely, definitely a no-brainer. It wasn't a case of, of discussing anything, really. You know, as soon as he wanted me in a club like Burnley wanted me, you know, it was about going there. You know, it was about just getting the move over the line, um, which we managed to do. Um, it was, I'll say two minutes before deadline, but it was actually the next day that it was actually announced that it had gone through um, in the afternoon. So, yeah, no, as soon as Eddie had become interested in me, um, you know, it was a no-brainer for me to go. And, you know, obviously there was other options for me at this point because I was doing really, really well at Bournemouth. But, you know, following a man who you truly believe in, um, you know, as he said, it was a no-brainer. In terms of Burnley, how did the club differ to, to Bournemouth? Um, it differed in, obviously, in players. As he said, Eddie Howe was an extremely young manager at Bournemouth. He's still a young manager now. But the best way I can describe it is that, you know, as players at Bournemouth, we were robots and Eddie Howe was our controller. You know, he had the remote control. So if he put a chip into you as a player, you know, you would follow everything he wanted you to do. If he said run for that brick wall, you would do it. And, you know, don't get me wrong, one or two came in and didn't want to follow that and they were quickly you know, pushed to the side and then they were made to find new clubs. I felt that he had the respect of us straight away because some of us had worked under him when he was a coach uh, under Kevin Bond. And also he was a legend at Bournemouth for his playing days. So he was well respected, you know, from the younger boys because of what he had done with us on a personal level of coaching. The older boys, because they had played with him and knew what he meant to the club. You know, the fans instantly brought into what he wanted to do because of what he had done for the club. He went to, to Burnley and, you know, you've got players who are, who are older than him, around the same age as him. You've got big egos. You've got all these sorts of things. And let's be honest, he went into, maybe a lot of fans don't know this, but he went into a, a culture of some bad professionals. Um, you know, and that's, that's me being honest about it. You know, obviously I won't name the people because that would be highly unfair, but he went into a culture where a lot of professionals will look back on themselves now on, on that time and be like, well, you know, I could have done a lot better. You know, I'm almost ashamed of, of my actions and, and what I was doing. Um, you know, he was probably looked at by some of them as, well, who's this young boy? You know, he had a lot of players who played in the Premier League um, saying, well, I played in the Premier League. Like, who are you to kind of talk to me? And a lot of players who didn't want to buy into things, which made it even more difficult. And, and the best way I can describe it, um, he had a lot of professional footballers, but he had a lot of players also that didn't want to be professional. So they were professional footballers in job title, but in actions, they weren't very professional. And that made it extremely hard for him. And, you know, if you look back on his time now, he'd probably say, you know, he maybe went about things a bit differently um, and with how he was trying to, you know, move players on and, and change things over. Maybe we've done it, you know, a bit more subtly. But he's just an honest guy and wears his heart on his sleeve. 
And I think a lot of players didn't like him doing that because they probably knew it was the end of the road for them. Um, and when you know it's the end of the road for you, you know, three, four, five months before, you know, your contract's up, you then become a nuisance. Well, some people become a nuisance. And, you know, it's very hard for a manager to, to manage a squad when you've got four or five boys who know they're not going to be there next season, either because their contract's up or you don't want them. And, you know, they're really then, I spoke about being infectious in a positive way. They're doing it in a negative way. And misery loves a best friend. So when you can bring three or four people into your group and you can all moan about everything that's happening, before you know it, that group of four goes to a group of eight. And then it's really tough for the manager then to, to turn that around. You, I'm not going to ask you to name names, as I say. I'm, uh, you've said that as well. I'm not going to try and do that. That's not the way I do this podcast. But what I want to ask you, you might not want to talk about it. See, in terms of the lack of professionalism, what were some of the examples of things that went on? Uh, there was a drinking culture, um, you know, three, four times a week. Um, there, I, there, was, there, was a, there was a player there that, you know, that used to drink on, if we had an away game on a Friday, you know, he used, used, used to be known to, you know, have a, have a, have a bottle of wine. Um, you know, these are just the, some of the things. And don't get me wrong, within that group, and there were some great professionals, older players, you know, your Graham Alexanders, you know, model professionals. Um, but I'm not saying that all the boys who were being unprofessional were older boys. There were, there were younger boys also, you know. And there were just one too many for me that, that, that kind of looked at it as a, as, a, as a cash cow, maybe the club as a cash cow, rather than, you know, wanting to push the club back up into the Premier League, you know, really thriving to, to, to achieve something. Well, he had that at Bournemouth where, he, you know, he had a, a core of players that maybe were non-league or had proven themselves to professional football. I think he had, at that point in the Championship, a lot of players who felt that they may be above this, they didn't have to prove themselves to that level because they've, they've been there and they've done it and they've been in the Premier League. And I think his recruitment was, again, trying to bring in players who had something to prove. You look at Bournemouth, how many players does he really sign now who have been there and done it? Jermaine Defoe was one, didn't last very long because maybe he didn't want to buy into the Eddie Howe way. You know, I've heard Jermaine Defoe's a fantastic individual, um, you know, in and around the, the training centre at Rangers now and he's always out with the young boys helping them. So maybe him and Eddie might have cashed on a few things and obviously Eddie moved him on. But you go through Eddie Howe's signings at Bournemouth and there won't be many boys there who have, you know, been there and done it and almost are coming down on a downward spiral to Bournemouth, regardless of age. You know, all of them are kind of using Bournemouth as a stepping stone, and I think he understands that. At Burnley, I think he had too many players who, you know, didn't care either way. And, and that's, again, as a manager, that's a huge problem. A huge problem, that is. And in his, in his full season when he gets there, um, he makes changes. And a player I want to ask you about, because two players, actually, I recently interviewed Jay Rodriguez, um, great, great guy. Obviously, came to Stirling Albion up in Scotland, helped his development. I want to ask you about Jay, and I also want to ask you about Charlie Austin. Charlie, because a very similar background to you in terms of he came through the, the non-league setup and got his break into football quite late, so that when he arrived, like yourself, he appreciated every moment. Yeah, um, you know, Charlie. I'd met Charlie. He came to Bournemouth before signing his first professional contract at Swindon. So, you know, I've known Charlie for an awfully long time. And Charlie's just the goal scorer. You know, even now people will look at him and, and, and think he, his style's unfashionable and, you know, he doesn't maybe look how they expect it, you know, the typical centre-forward to look. And I think that probably cost him in terms of, you know, 
playing for England. Um, I just think if he came from Man United Academy and scored the goals he'd scored and performed the way he's performed, he'd, he'd had England caps, you know. Um, but but Charlie, yeah, he, he's just a goal scorer. As I said, you know, he scored goals at every level of non-league. I um, mean, he carried out on going into the football league. But don't get me wrong, that boy works hard at his game. You know, Charlie works really, really hard at his game. He works really hard on his finishing, you know, on his heading, on his movement. That doesn't come you know, naturally to him. Yes, he has natural talent, but, you know, he's really worked at getting the best out of those talents. And, you know, he deserves everything he gets in football. He, as I said, he's a fantastic guy and, you know, he, he's a brilliant, brilliant player. Um, you know, again, he came to Burnley and he scored the goals. He went from Swindon to Burnley and people were like, oh, can he really step up? But, and he showed that he could do it. And, you know, he was brilliant for the dressing room. As I said, he's a, he's a, he's a real good character. Um, you know, everyone likes Charlie. And as I said, we're friends to this day. So for me, as a, as a centre forward, he, he's, a, he's one for non-league players to look up to and say, well, listen, you know, he's carried on doing what he was doing in the non-league setup. You know, he's, yes, he's had to work hard on the training ground to step up each time he, he, he did that. But, you know, it shows that you can have a route from what's seen as the bottom non-league to the top, you know, because he's, he's scoring goals in the Premier League or scored goals in the Premier League and obviously hopefully gets back there with West Brom uh, for next season. Absolutely. And another player you played with who's flying at the elite level, now Atletico Madrid, Kieran Trippier, very young at the time when he comes in. What was he like at that age? <laughs> Trips is a brilliant guy. And I remember when I was just touching on, obviously, his move to Atletico Madrid and it came out. I think it was them and maybe a team in Italy. And I was like, I cannot see him, you know, moving there. I couldn't see him moving down to London, to be honest, when he went. Um, he's a real homeboy, Trips. Um, but, no, again, you know, I can't speak highly enough of, it, of him, you know, especially off the pitch. Um, you know, again, gets on with everybody. A, a real hard worker. And, you know, him and Ben Mee made... At the time, you know, moving from Manchester City to, to Burnley, you know, a lot of people would have, you know, sat there and been saying to them, no, stay, stay at Man City. What are you doing? Do not leave Man City to go to Burnley. Not that Burnley aren't a big club, but Man City are probably one of the biggest clubs, um, you know. And that, that shows the character of both of those boys, you know. And I've spoken about it earlier, about going and playing first-team football. And they knew that at Manchester City, no disrespect to either of them, that their, their opportunities would have been really limited. You know, so they said, right, I will go down the league and, you know, I will go to Burnley. And, and they're both, you know, really developed from doing that. You know, Ben Mee's captain in the Premier League and, and, and Kieran Trippier's playing Champions League football. And at that young age, if they wouldn't have, have made that move and, and did these things, they wouldn't have been playing at the level they are now, you know. So, so fair play to both of them. But, yeah, no, Trips is a, a brilliant player. They're probably the best crossover of the ball that, I, that I've ever played with. Um you know, sometimes you just used to whip the ball in there and you just think, like, how's he even, how's he even done that? Um, but it, as again, that, that, that's not luck. That's him taking balls out onto the training pitch, um, and, you know, and putting these crosses in. And, you know, he, he really brought into the Burnley way trips. And as I said about Eddie Howe, um, wanting players who have something to, brew, uh, to prove, rather, you know, th these young boys coming in and, and the changes that they made kind of to the culture and stuff at the football club. Um, you know, I think all Burnley fans will say, you know, when they look back now, you know, the young players began to make a difference because of things began to change. Um, but yeah, Trips is a, is a fantastic player and, you know, it shows that, you know, playing in the World Cup and scoring goals in the World Cup, you know, that's no more than, than he deserves. Absolutely. The work ethic is, is second to none, as you've said. When you reflect on your time at Burnley, 
Um, it was a it was a good time um, when Eddie was there. It was a time that when you played regularly, then things change a wee bit as a change of management comes in. Um, in the end, was it just again the the reason you wanted to move to to Leighton Orient because first team football is what, what it's all about at the end of the day. Um, I think it was more to do with being homesick. Um, you know, I, I really began to struggle um, with things because when you're when when you're playing regularly and you know you're away from home, you can kind of deal with it. Um, but when you're not playing, you, you know you have too much time to think uh, as as a professional footballer. And, and and I fell into that category really. You know, I had too much time to think. I was I was training and getting to the Saturday and and not being able to to play and, and it becomes, you know, awfully frustrating, um, you know, and it becomes really, really difficult. And I remember when, uh, when Sean came in, I was injured at the start. Um, and then obviously, you know, I began to get back to fitness and all things were positive. You know, when, when, when Sean Dyche came in, you know, the meeting I had with him, everything was positive, you know, I was going to get my chance, you know, he believed in me as a player, everything like that. And it was probably, you know, more me than, no, not probably, it was, it was more me because, you know, when I, did try and come back to fitness you know I could probably put myself in that category when I was saying to you about professional footballer uh, through job title but how professional was I being away from it now I'm, I'm not saying I'm not a drinker or anything like that or late night but maybe the food I was putting into myself and how hard I was working to get fit to get back as fit as I needed to be you know I could have done more you know I definitely could have done more um, and I'll never forget you know the game at, at Barnsley I think I'd been on the bench for for a wee while and then you know we had a game at Barnsley and suddenly I think we had a few injuries or a suspension or something like that and, and Sean put me in to start and you know when that opportunity came I wasn't ready you know and that's when I talk about you know how professional was I being because I should have been ready as I say you can't replicate games you know in, in terms of what you're doing in training but I could have done more and I could have been fitter and I could have been you know in a better position to take that opportunity and I wasn't um, and, and I look back on that time and now I'm going into coaching and I'm an older player. I'll never allow another player to you know, be in that position as long as I can help it. You know? And I always remind them, yes, you're not playing, but do that little bit of extra running. Do that little bit of stuff that's going to keep you sharp. Um, and I didn't do that. And I remember I played that 45 minutes against Barnsley. I was actually dragged at half-time and I could have been dragged after 15 minutes because I was woeful. Um, and that's just because I just, I just felt really heavy. I felt really lethargic. I had nothing in me. And I remember I saying to uh, John Bazelle, he was a fitness coach at the time after the warm-up. I said, I feel like I'm getting cramped. And that was just because I just hadn't looked after my body. Because I'd you know, had that positive meeting with Sean, maybe I'd, I'd taken that for granted. And then I came back and I wasn't getting game time. I, I then probably came a bit frustrated, as I spoke about. But then I, then I went away from the, the Marvin Bartley ethos of always giving everything you've got. You know, you're lucky, you're privileged to be in this position. And that three months probably taught me an awful lot. You know, never, ever go back to being that guy again. You know, never take things for granted in a professional football sense or even anything in life. Um, and I did at that point. And I, I remember playing that game and coming off at half-time, I knew that was kind of the end for me. When it's near the end for you, you mentioned the homesick element there as well. Was getting back down south the, the main priority to, to not only personally feel better and, and feel more at home, but, but get your football career back on track at, at, in an area where you felt comfortable living? Yeah, it, it definitely was. Um, it most definitely was. And, you know, that, that was the important thing for me, you know, get back down south. And I remember, obviously, I'm, I'm from Redden and, and Leighton Orient's probably, or Leighton's probably 
you look on AA route plan, it'd probably take an hour and 10 minutes. Um, you know, we used to train in, in, in Chigwell, near Chigwell. And I looked at that as well. And it was like an hour and 15 minutes or whatever. So I said to Junior, yeah, you know, I'm going to stay in Redden and do the commute. And he was like, the traffic will be a nightmare. And I was kind of like, at that point, it, I didn't care. I just wanted to go. I was like, no, I want to go. I want to go. And no disrespect to Leighton Orient. It didn't matter who the club was. I just wanted to be closer to home. Um, that was my main priority. And I remember doing that that journey. And, you know, it was hour and 45 minutes there, hour and 45 minutes back with traffic dependence. Sometimes there was an accident and it would take two hours. And again, it wasn't a way that I was ever going to get the best out of myself during that spell. You know, I was... I went there and I began to struggle with hamstring uh, injuries, you know, my lower back and all this, all, all through travelling. And, and again, you know, it, it wasn't ideal, but I was trying to make the best out of a bad situation. I just wanted to be home. Um, so, yeah, you know, the Leighton Orient move came about, just just wanting to be closer to home. And although I was having to long drives, I was just giving my best when I, when I did play and, and when I did train. But at times my body just wasn't able to do what I wanted it to do because I was the traveling I was putting into it. But at that point, you know, my, my being at home and, and that, that side of my life was more important than, than anything else. And, you know, I, I think that helped me mentally for sure. Um, you know, being back home. Being back home, Leighton Orient, Russell Slade is the manager. Um, and when you first go in there, I mean, what was that like? Yeah, it was, obviously I was coming kind of down a level. So it was, I was looked upon as, you know, being a player that's going to really help the club. Um, you know, Russell told me his ambitions for the club. Obviously, I went on loan first and foremost, um, which is brilliant. I, I was actually just recovering from a hamstring injury at Burnley. And um, I think I did one actual full training session before then going on loan. And Alistair Beatty, who's still there now at Burnley as a physio, um, you know, brilliant physio, top, top, top notch physio. And he said, Marv, you're not actually ready. You know, you're going to need another know two weeks probably a training just to get some miles in into the hamstring you know let's build it back up and you know although I never said to Alistair no I need to go for, for, for my sanity I just said to him no no I want to go I want to go I want to go and I kind of forced it through and you know against what he wanted me to do but you know if I would have explained to him the reasons I really needed to go then obviously he would have said you know what just go and just kind of look after yourself but I went into Leighton Orient with the the, the, the hangover of that injury um, I remember we played Carlisle away the first game and I met them in Blackburn um, at the train at Blackburn's uh, training centre before you know going on to Carlisle and I remember the, the Friday I trained with them on the Friday and then the Friday night my hamstring was was off a rock you know I wasn't ready to be doing the, the training that they had me doing obviously it was actually a full-blown training session where at the session I did with Bernie I kind of looked after myself you know I was going to a new club I had people to impress and I tried to do a little bit too much and my hamstring was a rock, um, you know, and I remember the Carlisle game came along and I was always going to be sub because I only trained with them on the Friday, but I, I couldn't move. I couldn't warm up. I couldn't do anything in the warm up. I remember staying in the, in the bath maybe for about two hours, you know, that night before the game. And, you know, it, it, it was one of those and that kind of just was a kind of knock on effect. You know, I, I, I was then struggling with, with the hamstring constantly. Um, but it was a great club to go into, a great group of boys. Um, you know, obviously we had Barry Hearn as a chairman at that point, was, was brilliant, you know, a real character. Um, but in, in the first season, I mean, I, I really didn't get the, the game time that I kind of wanted because the team just, just carried on winning. And, you know, looking back on it, it's probably a good thing for me because I'd have probably, you know, injured my hamstring even more than I did. Um, 
so yeah, it was it was a good season that ended with you know obviously us going to the playoff final and, and losing, but um, no, there was a, a real good group of lads. Two players during your time at Leighton Orient, I want to ask you about Kevin Lisby, Joby Mackinoff. Just what was it like to play with them? Uh, Joby's a, a brilliant, brilliant professional. Um, talking about him firstly, um, you know, Joby came in during the second season because we were brought out by an Italian. Uh, who pumped an awful lot of money into the football club. So our marquee signings were kind of Joby McEnough, Jay Simpson and Darius Henderson. And, and that caused, caused a divide um, kind of in the dressing room uh, there. And, and, and this is the thing with social media. Sometimes I, I look at and I laugh because I, I don't laugh, but I, I look at and think, wow, you know, this is the world we're living in because some players know how to type the right things, you know, um, and there's an awful lot of blame out there for the Italian owners. Now, I'm telling you openly and honestly, I've got nothing to gain from from talking uh, about it in, in one way or another, but at, at times, you know, there's a lot of jealousy towards those three players who came in, um, especially, you know, and, and boys began to, began to become um, real negative influences in and around the training ground, you know, and... That, that team wasn't relegated that season with that huge budget because we were a bad group. It's because some of the, 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 the players didn't like that these new players are coming on bigger money than them. They wanted to be the main man, you know. And as I said, people will blame the, the, the regime and the Italians for, oh, this is why you're relegated. And the fans will buy into that because as, as football fans, as football players, we're always looking for an excuse. Whose fault was it? Let's point a finger at someone. But some of these players need to have a long, hard look at themselves because I was there during that time. And yes, we had a couple of managers who English wasn't their first language, but football for me is a universal you know, language within itself. And I knew what he wanted us to do. And yes, you'd have to probably think about it a little bit more and probably try and you know, show you on a tactic board and you, know, you would get it that way. But some players didn't want that to happen. They wanted to use that as a barrier. They wanted to use that as an excuse. I'm talking about this excuse culture within football and that was a massive, massive part of it at Leighton Orient. And now I see these players going on Twitter and saying to the fans this, that and the other and the fans are buying into it. I kind of sit back on my phone or on my computer and laugh because, you know, again, and I think this is where the saying of, you know, people being professional footballers in job titles and, and unprofessional in what they're doing has really came from, you know, the few experiences I've had and I've experienced people doing this sort of thing. And at Leighton Orient, there was a group of players uh, doing that. Absolutely. And, and and having the group ethic, as you've said there, is is interesting. I, I wanted to actually touch on the Italian takeover. And one of the players I want to ask about in particular is Andrea De Sena, because he was at Liverpool, he was at Napoli, and then he ended up coming into Leighton Orient. What's it like when someone like that comes into to the club? Because... You hear stories where, you've talked about earlier, with Effie going into Livingston, a positive figure. Was Andrea a positive figure in at Leighton Orient or was he someone that came in with a wee bit of an ego? Do you know what? He didn't have an ego at all. And, you know, the thing about him, if you, if you didn't know his footballing background and, you know, you were a young player and you were just in and around him, you'd have no idea, you know, he achieved the things that he did in football and played at a level that he did in football. Um, obviously, his signing came through the through the chairman. Obviously, being an, an Italian, and um, Andreas was was uh, at something almost like uh, they do in England now at St George's, when you don't have a contract, you almost go to like a football camp kind of thing to stay fit. And his name was on a list of that, and the, the chairman brought him over. Um, he should have been 
an extremely positive figure um, in coming in and it should have, you know, been a real lift to players um, in and around the club. But as I said, there were, there were players that, that weren't happy that these other boys were, were coming in on the bigger money. Um, and, you know, to be fair to the, to, to the chairman, he put his money where his mouth was, you know. He wasn't bringing in players that had played in League Two into us, into League One, and giving them ridiculous money. He was bringing boys who played in the Championship, who played in the Premier League, who played in the Champions League. You know, he's bringing in a real good calibre of players. And, and some boys just couldn't grasp that they've been playing in League Two and in League One all their life. And they, they thought they deserved to have the same, you know, wages as these guys. And you have to be realistic about things, you know. that These boys are playing this level for a reason. And they're still very good players. You know, they're not coming to us when they're 40 years of age. But some people couldn't buy into, it, into that. And that, that caused a real, real problem. And that was the reason that club was relegated. Because, you know, we were imploding. That was what was happening. And, and people were causing that on the inside, but on the outside, on social media, they were pretending that they had nothing to do with it. And it was a frustrating, frustrating time. Um, but yeah, to, going back to Andreas, he was, he, was, he was brilliant. Again, for me, you know, speaking to him, you know, he had the, the odd funny story. The last time I think he said he scored a goal in England, it maybe it was against Real Madrid or something like that. Um, he had some brilliant stories and he was a real character, but no, there was no ego about him. And you know, the same with Joby McEnough. Darius Henderson, Jay Simpson, no egos about any of those boys, you know. The, to be honest, they're probably the most down-to-earth people within the football club. And, you know, those three, four were on the most money. Um, so that just, that just shows, you know, what they're like as human beings. You mentioned the fact that it was a turbulent time when the Italian orders came in, in the sense that they put their money in, but there was friction there within the dressing room, which, as you know, no matter whether you're at Manchester United or at Maidstone United, it... It's something that, that causes problems regardless of the level. You were playing well. You were attracting some interest. The opportunity to come up to Scotland with Hibs was there on a two-year contract in 2015. Was coming to Scotland something that you ever thought you would do in your career or did it come as a surprise? No, it came as, it came as a real surprise. You know, I was kind of, you know, after the season we had at Leighton Orient when we were favourites to go up and we, we were relegated, you know, my love for football kind of, you know, began to, to began to go um, just because of the experiences that I'd been involved in, and you know the highs of almost being in the championship one year and then relegated the next year, and and the kind of what I was, the kind of things I saw players doing on the inside, and you know it was just a really really negative um, negative time towards the end of late in Orient, and the arguments I see between players and managers because players wanted to use. You know, the manager having an interpreter as an excuse or him, him, him talking to us as an excuse. And don't get me wrong. Listen, if your mindset isn't right in, in terms of, you know, buying into that sort of thing, you can find a, a, an excuse in anything that anyone does. You know, and as I said, you know, when you've got players looking for an excuse and at times with a translator and the manager not being English as his, his first language, um, you know, you, you can find that excuse. So after that season, you know, that, that had really drained me. Um, maybe not on a physical side, but on a mental side. And I just thought to myself, you know what, this last year has been probably some of the things I've seen, everything that anyone would ever hate about football. Um, you know, I've, I've experienced it probably for a large part of the second season. Um, so I was sitting at home and I had, I had offers kept coming in from various different clubs. And I thought for me to go and put my energy into something, it had to be something that, was a project. It had to be something that I thought, right, let me get my teeth into this. It's a, you know, a club that's kind of well run and, and there's a, there's a real hunger to succeed. Um, and the offers I was getting from, from, from league one and, 
and, and League Two. No disrespect to the football club. I didn't, it didn't, you know, get me excited. Um, and obviously, you know, I was leaving it later and later. And at some point, I was going to have to make a decision on what I was going to do. But then, then the Hibs uh, option came up. And I'll be honest, the first couple of times I said I wasn't interested in doing it um, before, you know, going up to Edinburgh or coming up to Edinburgh and, and looking around the stadium, which is which first class, the training ground, which is an unbelievable facility. Um, you know, and then I instantly fell in love with it kind of thing. And, you know, it was it was a no-brainer once once seeing all this and hearing the manager's ambitions and the club's ambitions, you know, get the club back to the top flight. What was it like settling into life in Scotland? Because you mentioned the fact that you'd lived down south, you'd lived in the, in, in the London area for many years. You'd obviously been up north to... To, to Burnley as well, um, but Edinburgh and Scotland is, as you know, completely different to, to life in Bournemouth and London, just weather-wise more than anything. <laughs> yeah, um, but I felt I settled in really well, and, and, and the reason saying that, which will probably sound strange to people, is because, you know, when I sp- uh, left Burnley and I spoke of the, uh, the homesickness, I think that second year at Leighton Orient really frustrated me in a sense that, you know, it doesn't matter where you are because I wasn't enjoying my football then because of what people were like you know everything was it was a negative you go in every day and it was draining and you know I thought to myself do you know what Marv it it doesn't matter where you are you could be playing for a team that's you know their base in your back garden but you don't want to be in that sort of changing room again so the next decision you make in football make sure it's something that excites you and no matter where it is just go there and give it everything you have so I had that that kind of mindset and that mentality going into the uh, Hibernian uh, era and you know that that allowed me to settle so quickly again you know came into a good good group of players good group of lads uh, on and off the pitch so that that also helped but it's also a club that you know as they still are they're evolving and they're thriving you know, to, to, to try and get better, to try and do everything they possibly can better. And, you know, I kind of brought into that and that was kind of my mindset as, yes, I wasn't old enough to be like, I want to be a coach at this point and I want to start now. But my mind was already starting to think beyond my footballing days and going into that environment, you know, was, was really, really good for me. When you arrive at Hibs, Alan Stubbs is the manager. Um, just describe what it was like playing for Hibs under Alan Stubbs in, in, in that season. You worked with him because we all know about the incredible Scottish Cup win. And, and just describe that season as a whole because the likes of John McGinn, Anthony Stokes, Liam Henderson, um, so many others, Jason Cummings, who were just playing so well under yeah. Alan. You had a really good group. Yeah, yeah, like you say, a fantastic group and a, and a, a lot of good characters and different characters. You know, you've probably seen some of Jason Cummins' and stuff uh, since then, and he, he's a bit of a bit of a wild character. But he, he, you know, we didn't have ten Jason Cummins, so he, 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 you know, was put into that group and he thrived in there because he's allowed to go and do his crazy stuff. But at times we'd rein him in, but you, we also would allow him to express himself. But no, a, a, a really good group, and as you said, John McGinn, uh, Stokesy. Uh, Liam Henderson, uh, you know, really, really good players. Dylan McGeoch, um, you know, I could name so many players. But now they were a really good group. And, you know, we went into that season in the championship and it was different for me um, in terms of any other team I played for because, you know, we were now the big the big dogs, so to speak. You know, teams would sit 11 men behind the ball against us and we would attempt to break them down. And that was something that I never experienced in England. You know, no matter who we played against, whether I was at Bournemouth or Burnley, yes, sometimes you'd be, you know, maybe set up slightly more defensively, but you still attack. You know, I'm talking about, you know, some games 
we played in that season when we were one and like two and up, and teams would just sit and be like, do you know what? As long as we don't get beat five, we're happy with that. We'll sit behind the ball. So, you know, it taught me a, a different kind of side to football. But that season was 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 fantastic, as you've touched on, because we won the Scottish Cup. But there's also an element of disappointment because we didn't get promoted, and we we should have. We lost to Falkirk in in the playoffs, and we also lost the League Cup final uh, against Ross County, Ross County in a game that we were controlling. You know, and, and still to this day, I can't believe that we lost it. So, you know, winning the Scottish Cup was absolutely fantastic. And, you know, to, to win after it had been so long for the club and, you know, to see all those people out in Edinburgh um, after when we were doing the parade is, is something that I'll take to my grave and something that I'll never, ever forget. Um, you know, the best experience for me uh, that football's brought me, um, not only winning the Scottish Cup on that day, but that, that parade uh, the following day, uh, is the stuff dreams are made of and you know people will stay in football um, from a playing point of view as a professional and then as a manager I never experienced something like that and you know I, I stood or sat on the top of that bus and, and got to experience that and you know at 18 years of age being released from Burnham you know 10 years later or 11 years later to be, be on that parade was was unbelievable um, you know and that's something that as I said to you just now, I'll, I'll take to my grave and I'm forever grateful. And I have to pinch myself when I just kind of close my eyes and think back to it because it was really that special. Describe the, the Scottish Cup final from your perspective. Um, it started with um, anger in terms of, you know, not, not starting. Um, you know, I'd trained all week as, and been put in the team as if I was going to play. And the decision was made, I think, on the day for me not to play. Um, I definitely felt that that could have been dealt with better. I think I'd earned the respect of the manager um, for him to at least say to me, Marv, you're not playing. Um, you know, I, I want to tell you now before you know, I read the team sheet out and it comes as a complete shock to you, um, which is fine. You know, football only 11 people can play. I think that, that bit could have been dealt with better. Um, when the team was read out, there was, you know, 30 seconds of absolute rage. Um, I took myself away to the, the toilet cubicle. Um, to calm myself down, to then get my head back on the game and, and said to myself, Marv, you, you're not only playing in there with, with teammates, you've created a real bond within this dressing room with, it, with these boys. You know, you're going to see friends and, and, and boys in our classes as family um, go, and, go and play in the Scottish Cup. And you know what? You might have to go on at some point. So it's now time to clear your head and not think, you know, it's not, it was never Marvin Bartley v Rangers. It was always Hibernian v Rangers. Um, so, so deal with that side of it. You know, you're disappointed, yes. Get out of your mind. Go and support the team and, and the club as best you possibly can. Um, so, you know, to, to, to watch the game and be a part of it and then to see us win and score that, that goal late on, you know, again, worst I can't describe when David Gray heads that ball into the back of the net and it hits the back of the net. Um, you know, a, a, a sellout stadium. And I remember when I first came up here and, you know, I was meeting fans out in the street and they were like, just get that Scottish Cup for us. You know, don't worry about promotion. The Scottish Cup's more important. You know, every fan, Scottish Cup, Scottish Cup. You know, I want to see us win it in my lifetime. I think there was one person alive when we won it who had seen the last Scottish Cup victory. You know, one person, uh, one support. And that's, that just shows, you know, how long it had been. And, and we made a lot of people's, you know, lives that day. Um, you know, and the celebrations that, that followed it were, were absolutely uh, unbelievable. But no, what a time to be involved in, what a club to be involved with at that time. You know, and as I said, and I had that disappointment of not playing in the final, but I played my part, you know, leading up and playing in every game. And I, 
up until that final. So, you know, we all played our part. Yes, I would have loved to have played in the game, but the most important thing was, was to win it, and we did that. And, you know, when I look at my, my shirt and, and my medal from that day, you know, it's a, it, it fills me with pride. I'm glad because you mentioned the fact you, 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 you weren't involved in the way you wanted to be, but in terms of that team, you were involved in terms of, as you've said, getting there, the success that they had that season. Um, Alan Stubbs leaves the club. You've talked about the pride you had of the Scottish Cup. When Neil Lennon comes in, just what was your reaction to that? Um, you know, Neil Lennon's a huge name, you know, and a hugely successful manager at Celtic. Obviously, he'd gone down to Bolton and things maybe hadn't gone the way that he wanted them to go. But I, again, I spoke about, we spoke about Fido earlier and Liam Feeney. Liam Feeney had played with him at Bolton and he said, Marv, you'll love him. He said he, he's demanding um, and whatever else, but you'll love him, you know, and, and, and he was true to his word, Liam, in, in, in a sense that, you know, Neil Lennon came in and he changed the, the culture. You know, I, I talk a lot about culture and, and ethos and, and philosophy and he changed that. And, you know, I remember in his first meeting, it was, it was short and it was sweet and it was, we're getting promoted as a football club well done for winning the Scottish Cup last season, but you failed in the sense you didn't get promoted and you should have. This season, um, Hibernian Football Club will get promoted and that's with the boys in this, in this meeting room, also without you. If, you. if you're not willing to work hard and you're not willing to put that pressure upon yourselves to get promoted, knock on my door, we'll speak to your agent and we'll allow you to you know, go on to pastors new. Um, and then he walked out. And from that day on, you knew that promotion was, was the only thing that was going to be acceptable. And it wasn't an easy ride. You know, we didn't win every game. Um, you know, there were some ups and downs, but he, he was constantly demanding of you, constantly demanding of you. Um, and, you know, it takes that kind of, that mentality and that mindset. And, you know, he brought in a few experienced players, like you, you, Holt, he came in, uh, Grant Holt came in, um, added great experience to us. He was a winner. And, you know, little subtle signings like that were, were massive for us. And the demands of Neil Lennon, you know, he pulled us through at times. And you know, the best motivational manager I've ever had, ever, ever had. Um, you know, and, and, and again, I was, where I said with Eddie Howe, he put a chip into you and, you know, you kind of did what Eddie Howe wanted you to do. Neil Lennon managed to motivate you through words. Um, and he was fantastic at that. Were you ever a victim of the Neil Lennon hairdryer? Yeah, on a couple of occasions, <laughs> a couple of occasions. But listen, I'm one of those, you know, when, when I'm given that hairdryer treatment, you know, I, I, don't, I don't shrivel up, you know, like I, I kind of grow and I think, well, I'm going to show you. That's always my mentality. You know, when, I, when I'm met with, with difficult times or, or difficult periods, you know, I'm going to show you. And, and as a footballer, you're, you're met with a lot of those on, on, on the pitch. So, yeah. Uh, I, can't, I probably can't even remember all of them, but yeah, a, a few occasions I was, I was, you know, given that hairdryer treatment, and I like to think, you know, I came out the other side of it and, and, and proved him wrong, kind of thing. Because as I said, it wasn't something that would get me down or think that Neil Lennon's picking on me because I'm Marvin Bartley. No, Neil Lennon's doing this to me because he he knows there's more within me. You know, in in a sense, he's showing us uh, some belief in me because he knows it's not the best the best Marvin Bartley that's out there on the football pitch. Um, so yeah, you know, I was a victim of that, that hairdryer treatment, but as I said, you know, we got promoted under him, so obviously it worked. You mentioned the fact it works, <clears throat> pardon me, getting the promotion. I mean, just how happy were the club with promotion? It was it one of those things where it, it, 
it was a big moment, but it didn't have the delight of the Scottish Cup because, as Neil said, we should be a, a Scottish Premiership club anyway. Yeah, oh, no, nothing, nothing, nothing the club do now will have the delight of, of that Scottish Cup. They'll win the Scottish Cup again, it won't have the same delight. It's, it's impossible, you know. So if the club are looking to recreate, you know, what they got from winning that Scottish Cup, then, you know, you, you, you might as well give up because it's not going to happen. Um, but in terms of winning the championship, it, it meant a lot more in terms of people keeping their jobs. You know, if that club at that point wasn't promoted um, out of the championship, you know, Hibs would have been a, in, a, in a bad, bad way in terms of, you know, the budget that the, they'd given, you know, uh, Stubbs and then um, Neil Lennon uh, to get out of the league. You know, they'd really gone for it for two years. And the Scottish Cup, don't get me wrong, brought in an awful lot of money but not enough to mean that if the club didn't go up in that second year, there'd have been people who lost their jobs within the football club and the playing budget would have been cut significantly. And I think Neil Lennon knew that. And I also think, you know, he knew that he, some people who wanted to look at his Bolton time will look at it as him failing. I know he had a lot of things off the pitch, you know, behind the scenes that, you know, as fans, you'd never ever even dream about. But, just looking at it solely as a as a playing point of view, you know, people will look at it. Maybe he failed, he failed at Bolton, and he probably thought, you know, the mixture of if I don't get this club up, you know, people are going to lose their jobs. If I don't get this club up, the the playing budget's going to be cut significantly. But the most important one, from a selfish point of view, if I don't get this club up, I want to be looked at as a failure. And those three things, you know, put enormous pressure upon him during that season, and probably some of his outbursts. If you look back now, he probably wouldn't have had them you know, being honest about it. But, you know, I totally understand it with the pressures that were on him. And, and in answering your question, no, it wasn't nearly as, you know, big as winning the Scottish Cup. But from, a, from people keeping their livelihoods, it, it was more important. When you get back to the top flight with Hibs, what was that season like? And the game I've obviously got to ask you about is, is the five each game with Rangers. <laughs> yeah, it was a... You know, we always knew that if we could get out of the championship, then we'd be better suited to the premiership because, as I touched on earlier, you know, we, weren't, we were facing clubs in the championship, 11 people behind the ball trying to break teams down. We knew going to the Premier League, that people maybe wouldn't have respected us. Well, no, let's be honest. They wouldn't respect us as much as teams had in the championship. You know, they would probably look at us and say, right, they've just been promoted. Let's have a go at them. So it, it made football easier for us as a football club. You know, it made the games a lot more open as well. Um, so for us, you know, we, it's like a doctor water taken to the Premier League. You know, we really enjoyed it. Uh, we, we did really, really well. Um, so, yeah, in terms of actually playing, it was probably as silly as it sounds. Yes, it's stepping up a level, but it was easier for us to play in the Premier League. And that 5-5 draw, you know, was, was, was crazy. I spoke about it yesterday. Because um, we needed, I think, to win 6-0 um, in order to jump up a place. So we're 3-0 up after 25 minutes, maybe. I'm thinking, wow, we've got a chance here. But then before you know it, it's, it's 3-2, I think, at half-time. Then suddenly it's 5-3 to them. <laughs> so you've gone from being 3 and up thinking, wow, we can get the six, to thinking, wow, we're suddenly 5-3 down. What's going on? And then Jamie McLaren goes on and scores two, two more goals. And Neil Lennon brings out the old famous aeroplane, which was, which was fu so funny at the time. And it's still funny to look back on it now. Um, I don't know where the celebration come, came from. There was a lot of you know, verbals between him and the, the Rangers supporters. Um, you know, some of it definitely overstepped the line. 
Um, but just talking about the actual game, it was it was a fantastic game. And for the neutral, probably watching it, thought, wow, you know, what an advert for Scottish football. For fans of either team, you know, last game of the season, normally played at testimonial pace. That they're going into the summer, they're thinking, wow, like this is amazing. There's a real hunger from those fans to get their season tickets and to get ready for next season now because we're going to be missing this for six weeks. So. You know, it was it was a fantastic game from 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 all angles really, except from the one that you know the six 0 win that we needed to jump up a place. Absolutely, and as you see, scoring five goals at home is obviously conceding five not ideal, but you gave it the best goal that you possibly could. And ultimately, in terms of Hibs and your time at Hibs, um, a time that was very successful in the sense that the club. Um, well, as I say, wins the Scottish Cup, wins promotion. You get back to the top flight. You're playing well in the top flight. Ultimately, in the end, as you've said, getting that first-team football and moving on to Livingston was was key. In terms of Paul Heckingbottom, what was he like as a manager? Because when he came in, he had a really good impact, but it completely tailed off at the end. I know you'd moved on, but um, very strange how something can take off and then nosedive so quickly. Yeah, but to be to be fair to Paul um, and also Robbie who came in as his assistant, you know, again, I don't have a bad word to say about them. Um, firstly, as as coaches, uh, Paul was a manager. The coaching sessions they put on were were fantastic. Their philosophy for football is fantastic. Um, you know, I really, really don't have a bad word to say. They're absolutely brilliant. Um, and he said the impact they made when they first came in, um, you know, we went on that real unbeaten run. And it was difficult because Paul came in and I remember the game he watched because I was in the stand also because I was suspended, um, I think, or maybe I was injured. But anyway, we watched the game and it was a cup game and when we drew the game and kind of Paul kept with that team, you know, yes, he made the odd tinker here or there between then and the end of the season, but he... He kind of played with what he knew, you know, and the performance was good. Although you're coming, what the result was, the performance was good. I remember that. Um, so it was difficult for me to get into the team, and you know, unfortunately, I never got to start a game under him. But you know, me speaking from a from totally from a, a football side, he was he was brilliant. You know, probably the closest thing I've seen on the grass to Eddie Howe, and that's a huge compliment to you know pay a manager who uh, didn't ever start you in a game. Um, I think if Paul looks back on his time now at uh, Hibs, he would have maybe not had the total overhaul that he did that summer. Um, I think he wanted to change the footballing philosophy maybe too quickly. Um, you know, rather than maybe doing it over one transfer market, he'd probably look back over it now and said, right, rather than doing it over six months, I'll do it over 18 months. And slowly but surely, you know, introduce the things that I want to introduce. Um, yeah, I just think he just tried to do it too quickly. Tried to go back to you know not, not back to but try to make the team a, a real footballing team you know a possession dominant team and that's very difficult unless you've got a large budget like yourselves in your rangers you know it takes time to do it i think motherwell are now beginning to do that you know but it's been a four or five year um term for them to get to this stage um and you know, i just think paul just tried to change it too quickly and i think you know he'll be the first to admit that because he's a he's an honest honest man um you know and and if he could start his time again, maybe he would have changed it a, a bit slower. But in terms of a manager and as a coach, you know, I'm, I'm astounded that he hasn't got another job. But, you know, I did hear the other day that he's turned down, you know, a couple of opportunities already. He's obviously waiting for the right one. Because maybe, he, you know, the Hibs uh, reign has taught him that, you know, he has to be the right club for you. And maybe it was just the, the wrong manager 
um, at that time uh, for the football club, and or maybe it's the wrong club for him at that time, you know. Um, so yeah, it, it, you know, in answer to your question, it did tail off badly the second season, but I think the the overhaul of players, um, you know, didn't help with that. And we spoke about characters and people in the dressing room. He lost an awful lot of those as well. So it wasn't just players on the pitch. You know, he lost an awful lot of people in the dressing room. Absolutely, and and as I say, hopefully he'll be back in football soon. You've still got many years ahead of you playing, but also the coaching side, as we talked about earlier. I wish you all the best for that. I just want to finish with a round of quick-fire questions. First yeah, of all, well, first of all, Bean, what's your favourite sport outside of football? Uh, tennis. Weirdly enough, I would, I would, I would say tennis. Definitely to play. You know, I enjoy tennis. I enjoy watching. Um, the darts probably um, is my second best sport outside of it. Don't mind a bit of rugby, but in terms of playing, definitely tennis. You mentioned darts there. Who's your favourite player? Charlie Austin. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I'm just saying that. Because <laughs> he played the other day. We used to play at Burnley, and he used to, he used to give me stick, him and Voxy. And then Charlie was playing the other day on the PBC uh, YouTube. They're like a footballer's playing, and he, he threw a couple of uh, sevens, which delighted me. Um, but no, fa- favourite player, I want to go with Van Gerwen. I just think he's a, he's a machine. He's probably an easy one to pick as well. But yeah, Van Gerwen. If we, if we get a magic wand, we decide to end your footballing career and put you into the world of darts, what would your walk-on music be? <laughs> uh, the Champ is Here. I don't know if you've ever heard that. It goes, duh, 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 duh. The Champ is Here. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Um, best player you've played with? Ooh, that's a bit unfair. Uh, best pl- Darren Anderton. Yeah, although his legs were gone, what he could do with football was was like basically playing FIFA. Toughest opponent? Oh wow, uh, Abdul Tarat. Oh, yeah, he's. Uh, I talk about him and say he's wasted his talent, and the guys playing at Benfica played at AC Milan and the rest. But I think he he should have and could have played. You know, Barcelona's Real Madrid's. Man City's, uh, Liverpool's. Um, but yeah, he, he definitely the toughest, toughest opponent. Most underrated player you played with? Oh, wow. Dylan McGeoch, maybe, up at Hibs. Um, I think he just, because John McGinn was, was a machine and still is a machine, I think Dylan was kind of underrated in what he did. Um, so yeah, I'll go Dylan McGeoch. If he needs to be an English player, I will go most underrated player. Uh, do you know what? For a time, I would say Ben Me. Um, you know, but it, maybe even now, Ben just does things and he doesn't ever look like he's struggling to do them. You know, yeah, he gets the odd boot to the face because he puts his head, his head anywhere, but I, I think he's, he's underrated and you don't realise how good a player he is until he comes out of the team. Very interesting one. And back to some non-football ones. Beach holiday or city break? Oh, beach holiday, all of. Favourite film? Uh, wow, there's so many. That's unfair. I, I, I love the, the Iron Man uh, film, but I'm also a Denzel Washington fan as well. So anything with Denzel in it, American Gangster is good. So American Gangster or Iron Man, Iron Man 1. Favourite music? Oh, gosh, if you look to my Spotify, it's a real mixture. You know, you go from, from rap music that makes you think I'm some sort of gangster to Bruno Mars. So <laughs> I couldn't even give you a, a genre. Like, honestly, it's, it's all over the place. Um, it's probably something funny to sort out, really. 
Somewhere you want to visit in the world where you've not been yet? Um, this has to be football related. I want to go to Ajax's uh, training ground. You know, I want to see. I want to see Ajax train. So, a very boring one, boring one for non-footballing people. But yeah, Ajax. I want to go see them train. If you um, again, not putting any pressure on Gary Holt here, great manager. But if you could play for any manager, past or present, in the world of football from any era, who would you choose and why? Pep Guardiola would be the. The, the manager that I would choose, and I know people say he's had the most money, uh, you know, and all these sorts of things. But I think the development of Kevin De Bruyne and Raheem Sterling under his stewardship has been remarkable. And you know, just speaking to someone the other day who's very close to Raheem, and he was just saying that you know Raheem's confidence is through the roof. Um, obviously, you know, the last couple of months he probably you know, struggled a little bit, but you know he genuinely believes he's up there with the best wingers in the world and I think that comes from the manager because the manager believes in him and has made him a better player um, we all forget how young Raheem still is you know um, but yeah him and De Bruyne what Pep Guardiola has done with those two as individuals you know putting aside all the things he's won um, he'd be the manager that you know I'd want to play under Fantastic Marvin it's been an absolute pleasure thank you for joining me on the CFB podcast No problem at all loved every minute of it so we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a